But we are starting, though, taking another look at what we heard from Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry, yesterday in BC, our provincial health officer, and also what we've been hearing from other health officers right across the country, the different provincial health officers putting forward the same message when it comes to questions about any kind of a return to a mask mandate. But I think we all need to recognize we are all human and masks are protective equipment, but they're only as as effective as we make them. And that can be a challenge, especially for children sometimes. And I do not believe we need that heavy hand of a mandate to send a clear message that masks are an important tool that we can all use during this time and in every respiratory season. We should have one with us. We should use it in situations where it makes sense. All right, let's talk more about this. Joining us on the line is Dr. Lynn Filitro, a retired emergency physician, also a member of Protect Our Province BC. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know you uh, and others uh, wrote an open letter and there's been uh, a lot of talk about this and what we should be doing in as we are in these weeks right now where we're seeing more cold, more flu, more of those respira- respiratory illnesses. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that reasoning that we heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry? Well, I think we're in a bit of a perverse situation. We've got 72% of British Columbian through a survey that said they support a return of mass mandate. And now we're in the situation where we need to convince our public health officer, whose job it is to uh, protect the health of all British Columbians, including our children, and to prevent illness. She mentioned we'll do it when we're in the situation it needs it. We are in that situation right now. What is happening in Ontario is coming here. And by that, do you mean what's happening in the children's hospitals? Yes, what's happening in the children's hospital in the rest of the country is already starting to unfold here. We've seen the long wait times in the BC Children Emergency Department. Uh, We've seen beds filling up both on the wards of children's hospitals and in the pediatric ICU. And uh, surgeries are, cardiac surgeries in children are already being cancelled. A lot of times though, when we talk about this, one of the big questions is, but, but why is it that now we, were, we are saying that, uh, and some making the argument that every, time, every year at this time of year, there should be masking. Why are we seeing such an increase or what it appears to be an increase in the admissions of children uh, with things like, like RSV with, with these respiratory illnesses? So we found out last year that influenza was optional. Everybody was masking and we had very little influenza last year because everybody was masking and there was little virus circulating in our community. The mask does nothing in terms of weakening our immune system. What it does, it prevents the transmission of viruses. So that's one thing that's changed. The second thing that's changed, and we're just learning, that COVID is a wicked virus. It affects our immune system. If you remember, Dr. Henry suggested that we should delay getting a booster dose after we got infected. And the reason for that was part of our immune system was affected by COVID and preventing us from making antibodies. Immunologists are now sounding the alarm that COVID affects other parts of our immune system and may render us more vulnerable to viruses, bacteria, and even uh, other pathogens. So that's what we think is playing out. We don't have full proof, but if you remember, the Minister of Health in Germany came out a month ago saying he would reintroduce mask mandate to protect children because he didn't know what the virus COVID, SARS-CoV-2, was doing to their immune system.
Right. Uh, and, but getting back to the mask mandates and the call for the mask mandates, so one of the reasons given by Dr. Henry and by some other medical health officers as well is that, yes, it is a tool. And yes, absolutely wear it when you're in a scenario where you are protecting others or you want more protection for yourself. But mandating it in public places, whereas the only, where those are the only places where it could be mandated, that's not the only places where the virus is spreading. So even if you go to a school or you go to work and you're wearing a mask, if you're then going to a party, uh, going to a dinner party, you're going over to a friend's house, you're going to a recreation, you're going to go curling with a bunch of people, you're going to be going to all of these other places where you're not wearing the mask. So part of the problem is we haven't made clear that we need to go back to layers of protection. So totally right, mask alone won't work. We need to go back to the Swiss, Swiss cheese effect. And if we don't do that, then what we're going to see is our hospital overwhelmed, not just our pediatric hospitals, because healthcare workers have children and they will get infected by their children, as happened last January with Omicron. And if their child is sick, they're going to stay home. So if we don't protect our healthcare system and dampen the curve of respiratory viruses that is hitting us, we will not have healthcare workers on the job and we will not get the care that we've come to expect. In addition to that, we will lose more healthcare workers. Nobody trained in medicine to provide suboptimal care because they don't have the beds or they don't have the staff to look after patients. So that causes moral injury on top of already burnt out and stressed out healthcare workers. So it means we're going to lose more healthcare workers in D.C. when we're already short a million physicians. How do you make the argument, though, or how do you get people to sign on to this when there does seem to be, and, and I get what you're saying, there's a large percentage of people that, that are saying, yes, a return to masking is a good idea. But there's also a lot of people and the idea out there that people are done and people want to move on and want to find a way that, that COVID goes on the list of flu, of other viruses that we deal with. So... And the problem is that everybody in this province focuses simply on deaths and admission. COVID causes what's called long COVID, which is a constellation of symptoms that may renders you disabled. And the more infection you get, the more likely you are to get long COVID. And that includes dying of a heart attack, getting a stroke at an early age, developing a blood clot, developing diabetes. Basically, the list is incredibly long. And we haven't made it clear to people that vaccine lax does not work, that our, right now we are um, helping more and more vaccine-evading variants to come along, and they are more contagious in that even if you get infected once and you are vaccinated, you will get reinfected again, and your chances of chronic disability and lifelong alternating chronic disease in, are enhanced. How do we know that then? So with the amount that we know, how do we know that that multiple infections or or that does in fact lead to long COVID? There's been multiple studies done. The best studies have been from the VA um, system in the United States because they've they've got a data repository or representing millions of individuals. And they have looked at what happens if you get infected once, what happens to your odds with multiple infections. And basically, the more times you get infected, it's like playing a Russian roulette you're increasing your odds of getting long COVID. The other group in the UK is the um, long COVID group has shown us and and really publicized that people that got better after long COVID, if they got reinfected, they were basically um, developing symptoms yet again and getting worse. So we live in a society We have a duty when a virus spreads through the air to clean that air and to make sure that we don't 
share virus in the air that we all have to breathe in. And that is basically ensuring right now the public spaces are safe for everyone. And particularly right now, the people that are being hit hard are our children. All right, Dr. Filatro, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Just a reminder, uh, keep the calls coming. We couldn't get to everybody on the open line, but we were talking about more and more provincial medical health officers saying we are not bringing back the mask mandates. There are recommendations, but the mandates are not going to be happening at this point. We also heard earlier today from the federal transport minister, Omar Algebra, saying that there is not going to be a mandate as well coming back for things like planes and trains and such. So keep your comments coming to the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ or you can text that line as well. We'd love to hear from you. We are moving on, though, and talking about this, which kind of plays into what we've been talking about for, what, almost three years now? And the whole idea, I think, if we can talk about one thing we've learned, it's it's really not a good idea to come to work sick. It used to be something people would do because you would look like you were powering through and you weren't putting anybody out by having to cover your shift And it was for some people, I think, even a sign of weakness that you called in sick. But we now know it's just not a good idea. So that's what makes this story rather interesting. Uh, We received this tip. It was an email that came in that talks about the attendance support program and put out by the city of Surrey. And it says that staff who remain healthy and do not require the use of any sick time within a calendar year will be given a $50 gift card and a letter of recognition will be placed on their employee file. It's a staff who are in the lowest 20% of sick time users for their peer group will also be recognized with an incentive of $25 and corresponding employee recognition letters will be placed in employee files. And it says that they've looked at what other local governments and organizations are doing and have come up with this type of award system. Uh, When you click on it, it takes you to the City of Surrey official website, but then to a portal where only uh, employees of the city can actually access the program. So is this a good idea or is it encouraging people to come to work sick? Debbie Carew is the CEO and founder of Inspired HR and Inspired Workplace and is joining us on the line now. Debbie, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. And this is a really interesting conversation, especially coming out of COVID. Right. When we're all told, whatever you do, don't go to work sick. So what are your thoughts on seeing an employer rewarding people who never call in sick? This, this is a really interesting one. So if you look at it from the employer perspective and service delivery, when people miss work, it really has a big impact on organizations. If you think about a hospital when you've got all these nurses working overtime or teachers that are out, any kind of services, it is a real problem. But the flip side is, is we don't want people coming to work sick and we don't want to reward the wrong behavior. So a lot of this comes down to the execution of the program and how well you train the managers. And, and what do you mean by that on, on as far as the execution of the program? So really what you want to do is you want people to come to work and you don't want them to take advantage of sick days and, and programs like that. So to give you some background, the average worker pre-COVID, it's a 2019 data from Conference Board of Canada, the average unionized worker had 12.8 sick days or absent days, and the, the average private sector worker had 8.3 days they missed of work. So that's a lot of work people are missing. And so what we need to figure out and manage as an employer is what of those days are people genuinely sick and unable to come to work? And what are times and places where people are taking advantage of the system? And so managing that correctly and helping workers understand that the impact when they miss work, what it does to their peers and their friends at work by letting them down is one of the biggest things actually, ironically, that improves people's performance. And the other one is if workers actually know that the manager noticed that they weren't gone. So things like follow-up become really, really important. It's not about sort of putting people in a corner because they, they were sick and they didn't come in. It's really about managing attendance properly 
and following up with people when they do come back into the office. Right, because there are always going to be people, I think, that no matter whether you have an incentive program or not, there are always going to be people who are reluctant to call in sick, don't want to call in sick and, and go to work. And there's always going to be people who try, who, who make sure they take every sick day they're owed and probably in some cases even try and get more of that time and kind of work the system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when I look at some of the data, when I talked about those 12.8 average sick days that a unionized worker takes, People that are inclined to abuse a system, they're not going to trade 12.8 days of paid time off work for a $25 gift card, right? Like, so that is not going to change the behavior. It becomes a performance management issue. But really what they want to do is they want to reward the people that are coming to work and performing well. And really, should it be tied at all to, to sick time? Because even if you, you could be the best employee and the person with the best work ethic, but maybe you get COVID or maybe you get the flu and you legitimately have to take a week or even two weeks off work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why in sort of HR terms, we talk about culpable, culpable versus innocent time off, right? And innocent time off is absolutely that. You've got COVID, you're sick, your child is sick, you need to stay home and take care of them, that's really, really important. The culpable ones, those are the ones where my car ran out of gas on the way to work, so I can't come to work today. It's like, that was probably your fault that you didn't put gas in your car in the first place, right? <laughs> right. And so, so managers following up when people miss work, A, letting them know that they, they were missed, uh, that it had an impact on the other employees, and more importantly saying, how do we support you so you're not missing work in the future? And then the other one we haven't talked about that I think is critically important, too, is how do we support our workers to make sure that they're taking care of their health and their wellness, including mental health, because more and more people are missing work because of mental health challenges. So are we being proactive as employers by actually making sure we can do everything we can to help people stay healthy? And would that even go as far as I know a lot of employers will pay, say, half of a gym membership or will help employees out doing things that that if you take advantage of them could potentially lead to a healthier lifestyle? A hundred percent. And I really encourage if you are going to put dollars somewhere, instead of doing it somewhere like a $25 gift card for always coming into work, absolutely use that money for a gym membership, increase your mental health counseling time management, maybe give some kind of stipend for extra childcare support. There are proactive ways that employers can look at how they want to spend those sort of discretionary funds to motivate the behaviors that they want. I found on this, the the breakdown of this program as well that's been relaunched, one of the lines of it too also says, staff will be permitted to work from home while sick with manager approval. If you're sick but well enough to work, please speak to your manager to arrange from a work home a work from home option if eligible. To me, it makes sense, but it also seems like you could potentially be taking advantage there as well if you were somebody who was, was going to do that. Yeah, and exactly. This is where it comes down to performance managing the people that are abusing the system. And that's a very different thing than people that are like if you or I had a cold and we needed to work from home and we're well enough to do so. That's great, right? It helps the employer. It helps the employee. There's, there's no problem there. But those chronic abusers are a completely different thing. Like the people that you know that you see the ads that are kind of a joke or people are running down a ski hill with a green screen in their background pretending they're on Zoom calls. Like (laughs) things like that are things that you need to avoid, right? And just having people just be able to randomly say they're working from home because they don't feel well is not a good way to manage it. You just need to put some parameters and guardrails around how you manage people. And it does, it all comes back to having conversations, holding people accountable and rewarding the right behaviors. Um, Not just sort of put a blanket program on in this example. Well, if you always come to work, we're going to give you a gift card. Well, that's not really what we want today. Right, because it's not really rewarding productivity. It's just awarding that you got yourself to work on time and you were there and you were present at work or if you were working from home, I suppose. But you're right, if they're not checking productivity or or monitoring that or managing that, then how do you know that that person is actually doing more than somebody who maybe, again, had to take a week off because they were sick? Yeah, 100%. And we saw it in COVID with some of the super spreader events is it was workplaces manufacturing in lots of places where people work in close proximity 
where they felt this pressure to not call in sick or it was unpaid sick time. So they came to work, even though they knew they tested positive. And then we ended up with huge problems. And so we just have to be really careful as we manage through the situation. Would it be better then, do you think, rather than having an incentive program for for basically presenteeism to make sure you're always there? uh, Like you said, there are going to be people, too, that you know the person in your office that uh, whenever they're sick, it always happens to be on a sunny Friday or it's on when the, the ski season just happened to open the same day that that person was out sick. Rather than tying it to whether you're there or not, tying it again to to your productivity, tying it to to work performance. Yeah, and that's always something that I preach is if you can manage by objectives, you can have remote workforces, you're going to have people perform well, you don't have to closely keep an eye on everyone and be mistrusting. But one thing I don't want to forget, because sometimes we do when we talk about these things, is a lot of workers are actually frontline workers where they're not behind a desk, right? So Mm -hmm. they're customer facing or they're providing services, and those workers don't necessarily have the same flexibility. And we can't always manage by objectives because it's transactional activity. So in that case, it's a little bit trickier to manage than just saying, here's your strategic plan and you just need to hit A, B and C deliverables. Right. And you kind of touched on this, but again, do you think, is it a good idea to have incentive programs that have things such as gift cards or or like we talked about gym memberships or that have actual rewards for specific parts of your job? Uh, I think yes and no. I mean, I absolutely believe proactively focusing on health and wellness and things like that are a great way to invest dollars. We just have to be careful if we're doing them rewarding programs, like if you never miss work. I don't ever think that's a good idea. I would be more inclined in a case like that to say, ask the work team that works with individuals, who is the person that's helped you the most or who has been the employee of the month? Because the peers themselves are never going to, they're never going to nominate someone who's chronically abusing a sick policy because they're going to be frustrated because they're picking up the slack, right? And so there's, mm. there's different ways that you can look at this to be able to reward people that are performing well instead of just picking a simple metric like who's actually at their desk 40 hours a week. All right. Interesting, interesting policy. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us your take on that. Yeah, Thanks for having me, Jill. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this rather sunny Thursday afternoon. Well, we are talking about some new numbers that have been put out by the Angus Reid Institute. And this is really quite timely. This is a coincidence because I've been personally dealing with this for the past few weeks. And it just so happened that this survey came out. It has to do with veterinarians, veterinary care, pet insurance. And some of the findings in this study show that people think that it is too expensive and it is expensive I will give it that but I will also say that uh, I've been dealing with the Vancouver Animal Emergency and Referral Center specifically the ophthalmology section for my dog and they have been amazing absolutely amazing. I could not imagine people who care more about animals. And I was not paid to say that. Again, we didn't even know. I didn't know that we were even going to be talking about this today. But since we are, wanted to give them a little shout out. I will say, however, when talking about the cost of veterinary care, I would have been very happy never in my life having learned what it costs to call out a canine ophthalmologist to the office on a Saturday. It is not cheap. It is expensive, but again, worth every penny because the team at that center is absolutely amazing. This is a survey, no, though, not specifically about that particular center, but veterinary care, care in general and asking people about uh, their thoughts on that and pet insurance. Again, it was put out by the Angus Reid Institute and joining us to talk about that is the president of the Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl. Shachi, thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon. This is certainly one anybody who is a pet owner that's had to go to a vet emergency or even just the normal expenses will know it can add up quickly. But you've specifically asked people about the costs and veterinarian care. What did you find out? Really uh, a mixed finding, Jill. On one hand, people are incredibly appreciative and, and value the service that 
veterinarians provide to their four-legged and sometimes two-legged friends. But at the same time, uh, you also have a situation where the costs are really seen by pet owners in this country to be prohibitive. And they're not necessarily happy either with uh, what they get in terms of value for service with insurance. So, you know, people love their pets so much, but, but they are alive to the fact that making sure that they're well cared for, that their health is in good shape, is a pretty daunting financial lift. Uh, let's talk specifically as well, because I think this is something that a lot of pet owners grapple with. The do you buy pet insurance or do you try and have your own fund, maybe if something goes wrong and you have a big expenditure? But there was a, a big kind of shift or a difference in the answers when you asked people specifically about pet insurance and if it was worth it. That's right. So first of all, fairly few pet owners currently carry pet insurance. Uh, And among those that do, it is, again, not exactly an overwhelming positive or glowing endorsement of the service. You do have a significant segment who say, you know what, it's been a total lifesaver. This is the best thing that that I could have imagined. Uh, It's it's really helped me out. But on the other hand, you, you also have people who are inclined to say, you know, when I actually needed the service, when I needed the care for my for my pet, uh, it was not there for me. It was not available, and it ended up being, you know, just a waste of money. So, uh, as with insurance for everything, it is always a bit of a of a mixed story. And whether that's your home insurance, your car insurance, or any other kind of insurance, people do tend to experience that scale of uh, was it was it something that that totally saved me in this situation or was it something that I actually couldn't count on and even a small number I saw as well uh, said totally useless so uh, clearly yes. the, the people in that category that had it for whatever reason uh, whatever the illness or the ailment was uh, clearly didn't work out so well for them no, it didn't. But, you know, we we view it, I think, through the lens of an evolving uh, sense, sense of, of uh, value even for our pets. You know, think of our parents or our grandparents' generation uh, whom were, you know, like the dog is the dog. The dog sleeps outside in the doghouse. The, the cat, you know, supports itself and fends for itself by mousing. We are now uh, of an era, first of all, where a majority of households in Canada have either a cat or a dog or another pet. Um, smaller numbers have birds or, or rabbits uh, or even reptiles. But the, the fact that um, majorities uh, who own dogs consider the dog a member of their family, and people also feel that way to a lesser extent, but they do feel that way about their cats, uh, really tells us that, that we're seeing a bit of an evolution when we refer to them now colloquially or casually or in a slangy way as fur babies. That's that's what they are to a lot of people in this country. <laughs> yeah, I would put myself in that. I do consider my dogs part of the family, but I have never used that phrase when talking about <laughs> them. But uh, I, I get that a lot of people do. I, I, I totally get that. Um, and, and going back to when, when you asked people as well, and this has to do with, as we know, a lot of people did get those furry members of the families. They welcomed them during the pandemic when people were spending time at home. Uh, did you break it down then as well when asking people about the cost and the amount you pay and, and, and how they're feeling about that? Did it, Was it different depending on what it was, say, if it was dental or uh, an emergency visit because your dog or your cat maybe ate something? Yeah, definitely in terms of cost, there, there is a sense that, that some of those you know, things that, that maybe we would not have taken the family pet in for care uh, in the past or a generation or two ago are, are now some of the biggest cost drivers. So so dentistry is a big part of it. Uh, I've got a colleague who, who uh, was in some amount of financial stress and strain because uh, his little Dax uh, had to have massive dental work. And I was just like, I, I these these are new experiences for me. Uh, the fact that now little Pepita has her teeth brushed on a regular basis uh, and needs to look after her teeth is uh, is you know we're into a bit of a new world around it, Jill. The other thing that that I find is that um, 
and, and the, the data told us is is that as we come out of the pandemic, the number of households and the number of people who who adopted a pet during the pandemic uh, are now uh, starting to deal with separation anxiety. And I, do, I don't want to minimize it because we do love our pets, but I, I, th- I thought it was quite notable that almost the same number of people said that they had anxiety about being away from their pets as also identified the pet having anxiety about being left <laughs> alone all day. Yeah, exactly. And you don't want to minimize it. But, but you know what, if you deal with your dog, and I would think it would be less so of a cat. Cats are pretty independent. But if you make your dog okay with it, which you can do, your dog's going to be fine. And and you you should probably be fine with that, too. Uh, yeah, indeed. And, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing, Jill. Uh, I thought mm, not once, not twice, but maybe five or six times about adopting a little furry friend, uh, a dog specifically during the pandemic when we were all working from home. And the only reason I didn't was because I knew that with my work schedule and travel schedule post-pandemic, it would not be fair to my little Fido. Or it would be very expensive because Fido would be going on staycations to lovely pet resorts and all of those other yes. fun things. Or or would end up just living permanently with siblings or parents or cousins and then not be my dog anymore. Or that, or that. Um, yes. One other finding I wanted to ask you, I found this interesting too. It seemed like a bit of a disconnect where, and it kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, pet owners, they, they're giving good marks, high marks to their veterinarians. I mean, veterinarians do it because they love animals they are so dedicated but they also found that they were charging too much which did seem like a bit of a disconnect um it it is and and i mean i think it speaks to um in an age where again relatively few pet owners carry or pay for or have pet insurance uh veterinarian fees are are deemed to be high i'm sure veterinarians uh, listening to this interview will be yelling at the radio and saying wow we're worth it we're worth every penny and i'm sure they are because you know, you can't you can't ask uh, the dog or the cat tell me where it hurts. Right. So you've got to be able to figure that out. But you know, um, and, and so it is. It is that very mixed review. On one hand, pet owners absolutely value uh, the the uh, the service and the care that is given to their animals, but at the same time, uh, they do find it to be extremely expensive. And anybody who's had a vet bill and, and looked at it uh, on checking out uh, with their with their pet with their furry friend is uh, is is often shocked and we see that in terms of the data that's borne out through this study. And one other thing I thought was interesting too, because I think we tend to think that maybe as people get older, they become more responsible or even into say retirement when you might have more time, that's when you're going to be bringing these furry creatures into your home. But your your data shows that it's, it's a lot of younger Canadians. And I guess that's also pandemic related. Um, women and younger Canadians more likely to do that. You know, it's interesting. I think for a follow-up study, one of the things I would love to, to look at or correlate is, uh, is, the, is the relationship, if any, between the fact that we've got falling birth rates in this country, we've got younger couples for whom they're having to deal with uh, higher rates of cost of living. It's just, it's too, and one of the things we hear a lot about is, you know, raising kids, having kids, it's really expensive. We don't have adequate housing to make that move in our lives right now. We see it in terms of Stats Canada data where, where the average um, age of, of uh, someone giving birth is, is now much older than it was even a generation or two generations ago. And I, I do wonder if in this new reality where cost of living is so high, particularly in our cities, that young people are, are finding perhaps that, that, that uh, place of care, that place to nurture and care and that outlet in their pets. So that's something that I'm hypothesizing about, but I really want to study when, when we do a follow-up study around this. I look forward to reading those results and seeing uh, what you find with that study. Uh, Shachi, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Well, I should mention, coming up on the program in the final hour of the show once again today, we are giving away more tickets. This is for Highcroft for the Holidays. And if you've been listening all week, you know that every day this week we've been giving away a pair of tickets. You get to choose which event you want to attend, whether one of the brunches or the glitzy holiday ball. And all you have to do is play our random holiday trivia game. And today's game has a little twist. Today's questions are all local. They're about local holiday events and local holiday trivia. So if you think you know your local attractions, uh, we're not playing yet, but a bit later on, it will be in the two o'clock hour of the show. We're going to put two listeners up against each other in a random trivia question, local holiday trivia today. And one winner is going to get a pair of tickets to go check out Highcroft for the holidays. So that's coming up a little bit later on in the show. Right now, though, we are taking Taking a look at what was one of the promises of the new council in Vancouver, you'll recall Ken Sim and his councillors saying that one of the first things they were going to do was hire 100 new police officers, 100 mental health nurses, as well as help Chinatown deal with the ongoing property damage, the ongoing graffiti, the ongoing assaults that we've seen in that community. So we wanted to check in and see how things are going. Joining us to talk about that is Lorraine Lowe, Executive Director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Lorraine, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are things going? I know we talk to you often when there's been another attack or there's been more graffiti or damage, but how are things going right now? Uh, things are going really well, actually. We had um, a council meeting last night, which I spoke at, and the motion was passed. Uh, we're very grateful Councillor Kirby Young for putting that motion forward. Uh, so yeah, we are optimistic. The the mood in Chinatown has been uplifted already. And, and what do you think will come from that motion, or what are you hoping will come from it? Well, uh, just a little bit of a backstory. About a month ago, we were uh, doing a presentation to the police board, uh, myself and Staff Sergeant Lum, um, about our trip down to San Francisco's Chinatown and our key findings. And you know, the core takeaways from that was like the whole beautification, working together with the public um, public works, which is our engineering department. Just a quick response, better communication lines, um, and just just generally like a, a better cleanup effort and just making sure that we have a vibrant community so that we can have an economically vital uh, neighborhood. I know one of the ideas on that, uh, in that agenda, that or the agenda item that came forward was this idea of having an office located in Chinatown where city staff or the mayor, if he chose to, or councillors, uh, they could work out of that office if they chose to. Do you think that would make a difference? Oh, absolutely, 100%. I think, you know, having them being there in, on the front lines, you know, they're not just not giving lip service, and they're there with us, and they can see what's going on. And I think a lot of people don't really realize when you don't work and live in Chinatown, it's a very different experience when you are living and working there. So, you know, it's great. I, you know, I love the support and hopefully, you know, we're going to get to see each other a lot more. <laughs> uh, and I know when we talked to, to Councillor Kirby Young about this as well, there was also an idea to relax perhaps the penalties on businesses that if you're a business that's being hit over and over by graffiti artists, although I'm loath to call them artists, by vandals that are spray painting your building, uh, the, as you you know, a business owner can be fined if they don't remove it quickly. And it was the idea to, to relax that. Do you think that would be helpful for businesses? Absolutely, especially in Chinatown. Um, a lot of these business owners are a little bit older, the legacy business owners. Um, you know, it would give them some time. And also it's a coordinated effort too. So maybe these other uh, implementations of like quick graffiti removal, having like a community volunteer group going out there, what we learned in Saffron. It's all going to be coordinated and we can do this together. And then, you know, we can kind of build everything one step at a time. And it, it sounds like you are very optimistic about this and that this could make a difference. Do you think, though, I mean, there, there are so many other issues, and we've talked about this before, whether it is the random attacks on people in Chinatown and, and the violence as well. Uh, are you hopeful that the plan then to hire more police officers, to hire mental health or, uh, nurses, that that too will make a difference in your community? 
Absolutely. And, you know, with the support of the incoming premier as well, David Eby, you know, him acknowledging that we have a serious issue that requires attention, coordinating with our municipal government and discussions are being going to be centered around this and definitely a coordinated approach. So, you know, I, I could see how each of these individuals can actually they have like their own skill set of skills that can actually uh, coordinate really well and get the needle moving on it. And getting the needle moving, then what kind of a timeline, I mean, I guess we would say immediately that that people would like to see things improve, but how much time do you kind of give politicians, elected officials to to actually have something that they can show that there, ha- there has been a difference? Uh, there's, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, ideally, like about 18 months would be something that I can see uh, realistic just because of what we witnessed down in San Francisco. Like the turnaround was about 18 to 24 months. So, you know, it is a big problem. It's not easy to solve. It's not going to solve itself overnight. But definitely, you know, we are hopeful because um, both of these individuals, I can see them working together and then, you know, having the enthusiasm of tackling these difficult issues. And when you talk about the trip to San Francisco and what you were able to see there and talk to people there, was it similar initiatives that turned things around or what was your main takeaway as to what happened or what helped there? Well, the main takeaway I thought was this strong sense of communication and coordination and partnership um, the, between the residences, the businesses, the police department and the city public works department. So, you know, clear, direct communication lines, quick responses to graffiti removal and just building a better uh, open rapport and communication, not just with the city manager's office, but overall. And we talked about the office opening up where city council members could work out of. How important is it to also bring in new businesses and and new residents, but also s- somehow being able to balance that so you're not losing kind of the the feeling or losing the, the core of the neighborhood? Like the cultural aspect of it is going to be always going to be core. Um, I think just do it by, by attaining these actions, just the quick removal of graffiti, making the streets clean, making it more vibrant, it will bring back the economic vitality of Chinatown. And, you know, it'll attract more people to want to come down and set up shops down here. So, and then knowing that the mayor and council will have an office, a satellite office in, in the neighborhood, I think that's going to also encourage people to know that it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's getting more attention than we have in the last four years. And how are things feeling on the street? Because we've talked about this as well. And when we talked about the the very popular security guard who was uh, assaulted, and it was so lovely to see the community rally and and beyond the community rally for him after that happened. uh, We've seen women pushed down. How are people feeling, do you think, as far as safety and being out and about in the community? Well, I think public safety is still going to be an issue. It's going to be a huge issue for quite some time. Um, You know, of course, again, it's not just our municipal level of government that that has the issues of dealing with this. But, you know, I think once everybody starts to work together and we we just need to to ensure that we are doing our part to make sure that our community are taking the necessary measures of making it safe, like, you know, having better lighting, uh, making sure that, um, you know, people are just more vigilant. Like, for example, myself, you know, walking to and from the car. Right. But it would be nice, wouldn't it, to to not have to worry about that every time you're walking to or from the car? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that would be very refreshing. All right. Well, Lorraine, we will be uh, checking in to, to see how things are going. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Good to talk to you again. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Jill. Well, earlier today, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West was officially brought in as the new chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. And Brad West is joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Thank you so much for making some time for us. Thank you very much for having me. It was a very, uh, I saw clips of the ceremony or bits of the ceremony earlier today. I I know you talked about what the next five years are going to look like. When you take on this role or as you take on this role now as the new chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council, what is the top priority? Well, I think the top priority is to move beyond the the study and the discussion and and the talk and get to action. 
I think that's the message that I've heard from the public very clearly. This is a growing region, and we need a transit and transportation system that's going to deliver for the people of Metro Vancouver. And so we need to move forward. We need to uh, get shovels in the ground, and we need to start uh, providing options for people to be able to uh, utilize our system. And so uh, we have a plan that we've come up with. Uh, It significantly expands bus service. It introduces bus rapid transit. Uh, It moves forward on SkyTrain extension, along with a number of other things that really are, at the end of the day, what's required to help people live the life that they're living, to be able to support this region. It's what the the people of Metro Vancouver require, uh, and it's what they deserve. And so I'm really looking forward to working with all the mayors uh, to be uh, tenacious and relentless in uh, going to the provincial and federal government and looking for their support so we can get this implemented. But how is that different then than how it's been run up until this point? Uh, hasn't it always been about expanding transit and making sure these projects go ahead and at the same time lobbying other levels of government? Well, that work has happened over the last bit, uh, but I think that things have changed in terms of uh, coming out of a pandemic in in terms of the growth of our region. I mean, we have seen such significant growth in in Metro Vancouver. And if you look at what the federal government has announced uh, with plans for record levels of immigration, uh, the the reality is if we're going to accommodate that many people, we need to have a transit system that uh, supports that growth. And so, um, you know, the provincial and federal government have been saying the right things. And and now it's time for us to to demonstrate we get it in not just our words, but our actions. And so the previous term of the mayor's council was very much focused on developing a plan. That plan is Transport 2050. And with that plan having been completed, we now need to go to the implementation stage. So that's going to be the difference, having spent the last number of years putting the plan together and what's in front of us now is moving forward and getting the plan done. Is there anything in the plan then that you anticipate will change with this new mayor's council or like you said the years that were put in putting transit 2050 together is it going to be implementing it the way it is right now? I really think it's going to be moving forward with the the plan that we've created because why there has been such widespread support for the plan across all the mayors, no matter whether you're from Port Coquitlam or Surrey, Langley, Vancouver, the North Shore, uh, is that this plan delivers improvements to every part of the region. And I I think that that has been a real uh, key component of what mayors have insisted on. You know, we are different municipalities, but we are one region. The people who call Metro Vancouver home are so connected. You may live somewhere, but you know you may work in another city. You've got activities in, in another one. People are traversing all over our municipal boundaries. And so it's time that our elected officials act in that same spirit. And so uh, the fact that this plan delivers improvements to every part of the region, I think creates a lot of buy-in, a lot of unity, and it means that we can go forward as a united group of mayors to the provincial and federal government saying, here's the plan, it's supported right across our region, help us get the funding to put it into action. There are things in the plan as well, and we've talked about this before, things that are on the list of these are the priorities, this this is what needs to be done. Uh, there are also things that are proposals or things to be looked at. I know the one that, the two that, that seem to come up, not that they're related, but oftentimes we talk about washrooms, uh, transit stations, and the Burnaby gondola, uh, just to name a couple, the gondola to SFU. What are your thoughts on things like that that are on the list of, of things to, to be looked at, but not necessarily? priorities? Well, I mean, obviously there's a number of improvements that are identified, but realistically you you have to prioritize them and and move forward in that matter. Um, When you talk about things like washrooms, I mean, this gets to the customer experience using uh, the service, and and that's incredibly important to uh, build a a culture of transit ridership. 
I believe that there's a, a number of key things that need to be in place for people to make that switch to opting for public transit. The first is the system has to be reliable. It has to be effective. It has to be fast. It has to get you to where you need to go. In other words, it needs to be a viable alternative to getting into your vehicle. And I, you know, I understand this better than most. I come from a part of the region that has not traditionally been well served and has been dependent on uh, your personal vehicle to get around. And if we want people to make this shift, the alternative has to be viable. It has to be realistic. It also has to be a, a pleasant experience. And, you know, things like washrooms, you know, that those are the basics. And so um, I, I totally understand how that becomes a, an, an important piece of expanding tra- transit ridership in, in our region. Uh, and then uh, things like the gondola again, you know, that's an opportunity to uh, service a, an area that has a, a very high demand for uh, transit frequency, that uh, has the potential to uh, free up that bus service that is currently dedicated to serving SFU uh, and being able to redeploy that throughout our region. So, um, again, I think the mayor's council is, is taking a very regional perspective on this. Uh, it's not just all about uh, servicing one community. It's about making sure that no matter where you lay your head at night in this region, uh, there's a transit service that you can depend on. Uh, you mentioned that you live in a part of Metro Vancouver that's not been uh, overly well served when it comes to transit and people uh, being able to use transit and use it seamlessly. Do you use transit? Uh, very rarely. Um I, uh, I use it uh, when my wife and I and our kids are uh, going to downtown Vancouver. Uh, you know, that's really been our experience is uh, maybe if you're going to the airport or going downtown, uh, we don't have SkyTrain in Port Coquitlam. So it's a, it's a connection uh, over to Coquitlam and then getting onto SkyTrain. So uh, I think in that regard, I'm like a lot of people in our region, um, maybe not using it uh, daily, uh, but use it on occasion. Uh, and I think like a, a lot of people, I would like to be able to make the choice uh, to use it more, but it has to it has to fit in the reality of, of people's lives and all the things that they have to do in their day. And so are you confident that the mayor's council and those sitting on the council are in tune then with what people want and what people need and what the lived experiences of people who do use transit every day and that, that you're able to hear those voices being in that there are likely other mayors like yourself that don't use transit every day and, and don't know exactly what people are, are facing and what the big challenges are? Well, I, I think it's our responsibility to bring forward all the voices of our region, both those people who are current uh, regular transit users, daily transit users, but we want we want that to grow, and that means understanding what is perhaps stopping people from being able to make that choice. And so every perspective is, is really important in, in that regard. Uh, and I do believe that uh, regardless of the different experience that Maris uh, may have uh, with the transit system, the, the one thing that I know is very unifying about this group is it's time for us to move past talking, to move past planning, to move past studying, and to get shovels in the ground and start delivering because that is what is going to make the difference and create the options and the choices for people in this region. All right. Uh, Brad West, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you so much. I know it's a busy day today. So thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you very much for having me, Joe.